0: I think we're just about at one o'clock. Um, so I will hand over to Lisa Harding, our Director of Primary Care, um, who will set the scene uh, and tell you a little bit more of what's happening today. Thank you, Lisa.
1: Okay, thanks, Jo. Um, yes, welcome, everybody. Uh, we've got a, quite a packed agenda today, so I will keep my introduction um, short. Hopefully, um, you will find today's session useful. Um, we are recording it, so we will upload it to the website for those who aren't able to dial in today. Um, and if there are any questions that we either don't have time to answer today or aren't able to answer today, then we will um, upload them with the webinar on the website afterwards. Um, if anybody does have any questions, please feel free to put them in the Q&A box and we'll try and answer them during the webinar or if not, as I say, we'll answer them afterwards and upload the information to the to the website. Um, I'm really pleased to welcome a number of speakers today. And I'm going to kick off with Andy. Andy's one of our medical directors at the LMC and Andy's also a GP partner down in Dorset. Um, Andy, can I hand over to you to give the practice perspective?
2: Thanks Lisa, afternoon everyone. I hope you're all keeping well (coughs) in your practices. Um, Thanks for joining us today. So I've been asked to just give a brief uh, GP perspective on veterans health. As Lisa said, I'm a partner at the Hadley Practice in Dorset and also a medical director at Wessex LMC's. I don't have any specialist knowledge about veterans health, but we are a, a veteran friendly uh, practice. Have the next slide, please, Joe. So my experience of caring for military veterans, it's very easy to think of military veterans in terms of World War One, World War Two. I think what we've found as a practice having become more aware of uh, military veterans is is the um, number of people that have actually served in the military that don't fall into that first world war second world war category i do a skin clinic in the practice and the number of people that i'm seeing with skin cancers and sun damage who've done national service especially in the uh, middle east is phenomenal and then let's not forget the other campaigns that have been since the second world war especially the Falklands, Iraq and then more recently Afghanistan which is still a very live theater we have quite a lot of reservists who I had no knowledge were reservists or have been reservists in the past who've also served uh, and undertaken active service so open asking the question here have you served in the military often opens the door to to these patients seeking help which perhaps they haven't been willing to come forward um, for in the past and they they're fairly notorious at, at not um, not exploring help when they need it. So we have uncovered quite a lot of unmet need within the practice, both from a patient point of view, but also from an educational point of view of the staff within the practice. Next slide, please, Jo. So why do we become a vet, veteran-friendly practice? Well, geography, uh, we're in Dorset. Actually, when we looked at the map, we're surrounded by quite a few um, military camps um, and, and bases, both in Dorset and Wiltshire. We've got personal connections. One of my senior partners from a uh, long time retired used to be the medical officer down at the local Royal Marines base. So we've always had some c- connection with the Royal Marines, but a number of members of staff have got family that are in the military. We don't have any direct um, ex-military doctors or nurses within the practice, but there are those local connections. And we saw it as a chance to sort of improve our knowledge and care. We're we work in a very affluent middle middle class, elderly population. Uh, and actually, when we looked at health needs and inequalities, perhaps the veterans fall into that category category for us. And actually it demonstrates CQC that we were looking at health inequalities at a practice level, you know, and ways we could improve our service. And certainly it went down very well with CQC when we um, presented it at our uh, inspection. It's always good to distract CQC's attention, hope they're not listening. Uh, next slide, please. So how how's being a veteran friendly practice changed what we do? So you know, myself, staff, we've got greater awareness of patient needs, but more importantly, what resources are out there for them? Um, you know, a lot of it can, we're more aware of sort of ex, how being a veteran having served in the forces can explain sort of illness and illness behaviour. I'll never forget a chapter I looked after I'd looked after him for years. He was sort of a middle-aged chap, hypertension. Came to see me once a year for a general review. And one day I said to him, "You're looking quite down today. You know, is there anything? Is there anything wrong?" And he just broke down into tears. And it was it was an anniversary of the Falklands War. And I'd had no idea that he was actually a military veteran. He'd been a paratrooper in in the war. And all of the media coverage had really brought it back to home him and he'd had long-standing guilt about surviving you know when he'd lost colleagues in there and uh, he had a significant element of PTSD and actually I felt completely helpless in terms of helping him; didn't really know where to signpost him uh, it was only after a lot of sort of investigation through local CMHT that I um, was able to get him any help but he'd spent years not coming forward for help I think also, you know, an awareness of the impact on the wider family, we often see, you know, the, the wives, uh, children left at home when service personnel are, are spending long periods abroad, you know, and some of that can explain some of their health seeking behaviour and, and their needs. We read code all military veterans in our practice, they're, they're asked whether they're a military veteran at registration, but also we're doing that now opportunistically, and as I say, in my skin Skin Cancer Clinic, I, I'm often asking whether they've served abroad. Uh, secondary care referrals from our practice all get the, the read code military veteran included with them if they're sent because these patients are prioritized uh, by the NHS if they have illness or injury related to their service history. And as I say, we have you know we have uncovered unmet needs simply by asking the question, are you a military veteran? Uh, next slide, please, Joe resources I mean, there's a heck of a lot of resource out there for veterans but it's known where to find it we're going to hear about the the veterans mental health services later but there is a multitude of, of help out there and it's about how you find it uh, next slide please jay the key thing that we learned was the veterans gate gateway it's for any ex-service personnel or their family looking for advice or support it's open 24 hours a day and it covers everything from physical mental health to employment uh, social um, social issues and it's a real resource that I wasn't aware of until recently next slide please Joe there's also a multitude of charities out there for um service personnel and they come under an umbrella organization uh Copsio. next slide please Joe we're probably aware of the four main charities, Health for Heroes, Combat, Stress, the British Legion and Blesma. I've put the British Legion hearing fund there specifically because we do see a lot of um, veterans, especially locally with the tank regiment who've had significant ear trauma, but the Royal British Legion offer a a multitude of support way above just hearing. Uh, And it's getting an understanding of what they can provide for veterans or just signposting them to them. Next slide, please. And what I would encourage you to do is look at the RCGP Veterans Healthcare Toolkit. It's free. It's on their website, and it it's a really useful resource. Uh, you know, I use it if I'm seeing a veteran and can't remember quite where to signpost them to, or what what um, you know what sort of services I think that they need to tap into. But it's really useful for all the practice, and I'd share it. I'd encourage you to share it within your practice. So that's just a brief um, sort of perspective from a GP point of view and I think now we're going to listen to me interviewing one of my patients um, Toby who's who's a real inspiration. I was introduced to Toby via an email um, from his ex-GP just to give me the heads up that he'd be joining my practice uh, uh, and could I take him on as a patient Um, and that was pretty much all the preparation I had for looking after someone who Um, was going to be transferred out into the community on a ventilator with 24-hour intensive care nurse support. As you can imagine, it was somewhat daunting, but it's been a learning process for both of us. Over to you, Lisa. Right, Toby, Toby, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm really grateful for you joining us, really to give a, a, a patient's perspective on veterans health. Uh, and care services and and your own experience of navigating that. So, Can you briefly tell us how you were injured and what your injuries were?
3: Yeah, sure. Uh, I joined the British Marines, uh, Royal Marine Commandos, and back in 2009, um, on tour in Afghanistan, I was shot through the neck, uh, which severed my spinal cord, um, rendering me paralysed from the neck down. And from this, obviously, uh, it's left me permanently ventilated. Uh, I have super pubic uh, catheter and no no sense of feeling or movement from the neck down. So, yeah, quite severely um, injured. uh. When you
2: were training and when you were serving in the army, did you ever think that you might get injured and left with a disability? And were you ever given any sort of preparation about what may happen if you if you um sustain a life-threatening injury
3: the simple answer is no absolutely not um, first of all you, you when you join the military you never think this is ever going to happen to you you know this is something that always happens to someone else or a far distant story this isn't something you just don't realize um i mean it, it is there you know you know there's a potential but it doesn't actually it's not a of reality, you know, um, and then the military certainly in training, don't give any any sort of um, preparation for this sort of thing, um, and, and you can understand why, because if you were constantly told in the military, this is what potentially could happen to you, no one would even join the military, you know, <laughs> um, or uh, you wouldn't be able to fulfill the job to your best of your ability so th- there is no preparation for this sort of thing the military want you to be overconfident and believe that you are indestructible they do certainly not want this sort of thing so, so yeah there is no training for it in, in training for it in training if that makes sense um and i certainly didn't think this would ever happened to me um it's only when it happens then you realize oh shucks mm. Mm. But i do now. so yeah can
2: you remember describe the sort of medical care that you received either on the battlefield or or in camp or in hospital in the UK? What what sort of um, things do you remember? Yeah, uh,
3: on the ground, um, you know, it was that immediate immediate care, which was to keep me alive and stabilise me, and that was pretty much find an entry wound, stop the bleeding, um, check my radial pulse. Um, and, and yeah, uh, start bagging me, you know, started making sure I was breathing and that, um, that, that was the immediate care. Then from there, I think I was induced into a coma once I reached the main sort of hospital in Afghanistan. And then from there, once I was induced into a coma, they put me back to the UK for, you know, proper medical treatment, which was a lot, a lot of surgery um, on my spinal cord and and column, because there was actually a lot of damage to the column, the damage to the nerves, uh, the tissue surrounding the the neck, um, the arteries, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, and then from there, yeah, it was once I'd sort of stabilised and come out of a come out of a induced coma, um, it was just making sure that my sort of brain cognitive functionality was still there, basically. Which it sure is. Uh. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. The, um, where did you have your rehab in the UK? Uh, so from from the NeuroRTU, neuro-RT, I went to Hodstock at Salisbury, which is a spinal rehabilitation centre um, at Salisbury Hospital, um, and that's where I had all my sort of rehab. Uh, that took about a year in total, um, and that was just getting my breathing and functionality right uh, on the ventilator, getting used to things like that, and um, and, and just doing a bit of muscle, uh, muscle stimulation, things like that. A lot of physio, etc. cetera, um, and just how you... to cope with my injury. Sure, psychological support as well? Yeah. Uh, no, no, there wasn't actually a lot of psychological support there. Um, it was purely just how to cope with it. Uh, in terms of, you know, how to set up bowel um, care, things like that. Mm. Um,
2: where were you discharged to fr- from Oddstock then?
3: Uh, so from there, I was discharged to a military family quarters down here, uh, down in Pool, um, on camp, uh, which was semi-adapted for my needs. It, um, it wasn't 100, percent you know, um, perfect, but uh, you know, when is it? So, but yeah, that's where I was discharged, and and I was uh, sort of looked after from there.
2: And how long was it until you got your own um, your own
3: place off of base? From from my injury in 2009, I moved into my actual own house in 2015. So.
2: Yeah, roughly, roughly five years. And was that when you were formally discharged from the military? It was around that time, yeah. And I, I know the background story, but it took a hell of a lot of coordination to get your own place, you know, and a lot of people fighting for your cause. Uh, you know, who Can you explain who coordinated your care package and you
3: moved to your own home? Well, getting my own house, I was still in the military. So the military was sort of taking that on um, in terms of the funding. Um, but obviously I was on CC, the CCG or uh, Care Quality Commission's radar and they were getting involved as well um, and trying to see what resources and funding they had. There was also I think social services were involved trying to get OTs, occupational therapists involved to see what adaptions needed doing and things like that. Um, but overall I think it was the certain members of the military and certain members of my personal life trying to just coordinate all together to try and get the house yeah um as best he, as best it could be. You had a specific advocate though assigned to you
2: didn't you who he, he did a lot of the chasing up and wouldn't take no for an answer. That's right, yes.
3: Yeah, he still is my, my advocate is to this day. Um he was the one who was really fronting it up in terms of really digging and divulging what I could get, where I could get it from, and who needed to be involved, and if it wasn't being done properly, then he would certainly step in. And do all military veterans get an advocate like that? Or or just... Absolutely not, no. No, I mean, we do have a welfare officer um, who is assigned assigned to our case. However, um, it doesn't always... Well, that person's not always, you know, uh, up to speed with what they can, what uh, is out there, what's out there, what can and can't be uh, applied for, uh, and just what needs to go down in terms of getting things sorted.
2: So there was an element of luck on your part and being assigned your advocate and, and him being able to sort of play the system in your favour. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Um what support did you get from charities and have you got ongoing support from any charities?
3: Uh, yes I do um, obviously the biggest one is help for heroes they've done a lot of support um, the Royal British Legion fantastic charity they do a lot of help uh, with obviously with, with veterans um, and then I, I do have my own my own unit has its own association that have helped helped bring in uh, charitable, Funds. Those, those are the three biggest ones. Okay, let's talk a bit about your, your specific sort of
2: medical care needs now. Uh, yeah, sure. From a from a GP perspective, you know, what do you see the rollers of the GP in in your care? You know, what do you want from your GP? What makes a good
3: GP? I, I think the GP is is always my like first point of call. I think you know I, I go to well I, I seek your advice first. You know, if, it, if there's anything going wrong, I first raise it to yourself and then from, hopefully from yourself you can point me in the right direction or refer me to the right uh, area which 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 I need. So so that I guess the GP needs to be really involved in my care package um, and know all the correct routes and avenues as to where I need to go, whether it's to do with respiratory or neurological or anything to that so so it's really being um i would i I personally need my gp yourself to be really involved you know really involved in the care package and
2: i mean i can't believe it's five years ago that we first met and i think yeah I, i had an email just telling me that from from your gp on the base that you were moving into the area and that was kind of all the warning i had No experience looking after anyone like you and i think we arranged to meet up i came to the house to meet you and we sort of sat down sort of of, of some ground rules and i kind of said right what do you want from me uh and then i said you know do you know do you know what this is how i'm going to treat you you're a normal person you know i'm not gonna not gonna treat you any differently to any other patient um uh, your disabilities don't mean anything in terms of that sort of aspect of care and i think we still have kind of a normal doctor-patient relationship I mean, you come into the surgery to see me in you you know in your chair and your ventilator and and you know if you're not well enough i see you at home but actually in terms of overall contact
3: thankfully you don't see that much of me do you no i don't uh yeah which is a good thing i suppose <laughs> yeah you, i guess you're right it's you know having that good honest conversation at the beginning and um being treated just as you would anyone else you know um i don't need babysitting um i don't need to be you know multicultural uh wrapped up in cotton wool um so yeah it's it's you know being there when i need you but also keeping a a good distance
4: you know um, so. I
2: think one of the things that I remember when I first saw you is that you said you know there's a lot of things you can't do you know, like scratching your nose and that sort of thing but you're still very capable of making your own decisions and I think that's really important for for doctors to remember you know you're completely mentally compensatious and can make those decisions and have a voice you know and... Mm, yeah
3: and that's important that's, that's hugely important um, to be able to still be in control of my life or my destiny and how I want things, and also to yes, my background is not medical, but you know, um, I'm very much in tune with my my body, and I know my body very well, um, and I'm generally quite okay with what's going on. So it's good for you to also listen to to me and my opinions, you know.
2: And I think sometimes that that's really valid, isn't it? Because you and I decide to to go down. The route that you want to which may perhaps not always
3: be the route that your itu staff are living
4: with absolutely. you absolutely
3: yeah you agree with. That, that's a, there's you know now i, I fully uh, understand that that you know things there's this protocol in place for a reason um but like you just alluded to or just touched on there a little bit it's you know mixed in with a bit of common sense yeah. and and uh listening to me and um just coming up with a, a good all-round solution which works for both us and keeps me safe and and obviously is keeping you you and your profession safe as well
2: and um tell us a bit about um the other care care teams involved with you who else is involved with you from a sort of living with you and the other hospital teams are involved in
3: your care yeah of course uh so i have 24-hour care um which is facilitated by a care agency um, and they um, employ nurses and carers, etc. And and I have a twenty-four hour IT nurse and a twenty-four hour home care assistant um, who who look after me all the time. Um, I have my neuro consultant up at Salisbury Salisbury spinal unit, um, and there I go for annual checkups. Chest X-rays, uh, ultrasounds, etc., up there, and then respiratory-wise, um, it starts with all in the Southampton General, Southampton General Hospital, where uh, yeah, anything to do with blood gases, um, respiratory functions, chest infections, anything sort of that that side of things, that's where I'd be probably referred to there. So they're involved a lot. Um, and then I have yourself, the GP, um, who is, you know, my local point of contact. And, and, and that's generally, like I said, my first point of contact, yeah. So tell us about the psychological support you've had, Toby. Um, yeah, the NHS psychological support is there. And, and I, I had a lot of support from them, um, whether they were very understanding, is, is, is a tough one. I found that they were just going through their tip sheet um, and uh, uh, by all means I'm not I'm not saying that they were you know terrible at their job and things such as thoughts. It was very um, structured and going through the motions so it is there um, and they do that sort of 12-week, I think it's a 12-week course and then, and then you know, they they reevaluate you from there and, and you know, from a military perspective, you, you do it is hard to have a psychological um uh, what am I trying to say? Basically it's tough for guys in the military, you know, seen it it's frowned upon. Um I just found that it was very hard to to get into it and and communicate and it's very easy just to know what to say to get all the right ticks in the box and and get discharged and go home, mm. you know. Um, so yeah, uh, I had to then seek out um, private psychological help um, and go through the private channels to find someone that I could, you know, have a good rapport with and start building a relationship with and then, then I could start digging into the real aspects of my psychological journey as it was. Did you ever have any specialist military psychological input? You know, from um, I did have a military psychological nurse uh, for the first period of my uh, injury, but again, uh, they were not qualified really to deal with with the sort of the psychological problems that I was going through. At the time, I think she was just a little
0: bit out of her depth.
2: So again, yeah, it was it, it, it wasn't enough support, basically. Mm. I mean, I think increasingly, especially with veterans who are su- surviving amazing injuries in the battlefield, you know, a lot of us feel completely under equipped to support you and deal with you, and we can't understand what you what you've been through, you know, and we've got no experience of that. So it is a real challenge finding someone that suits you and suits your needs. I think what that brings me on to sort of my last question, and and that's what makes a military veteran different from the average patient.
3: I think we've got this um, innate stubbornness in us, um, and that probably makes us uh, think that we don't need uh, help, you know, or it's or it's maybe a weakness, and we probably avoid seeking help or when something is wrong we we probably not the first thing is is not to say oh i know i better i better get hold of my gp i better get some medical professional help here you know for us it's i'll be fine you know put on the brave face and just crack on crack on and that's that's dangerous that's dangerous sounding that's that separates us from you know, the average person you probably think, Shucks, I better seek some advice for medical professional help here. Um, so that, that, that's probably the biggest the, the, the biggest difference from, you know, your average normal patients in the in the community. And just really quickly, finally, can you just tell everyone what you've
2: achieved um in the last few years in terms of your your um the company you set up your your education?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um so since since I've been out of out of the military um, and got the right help and the right support. I've managed to get back to my education, um, redone my A-levels, gone back to university, um, finished my degree in business, and and I've managed to start up my own own company, Bravery, um, which is, you know, fantastic company. It's involved in extreme sports, extreme sports and apparel, and yeah, yeah, just doing what I enjoy doing and I'm still part of my interests and, and I'm still looking at ways I can uh, expand my mental capacity you know, and just building on my life, uh, bit by bit. Uh, and that, that's really what I've been up to, to be honest, in, in a nutshell.
2: Well, you're truly inspirational, Toby, and I can't thank you enough for agreeing to do this with me, you know, Absolutely. it's above and beyond being, being a patient. And, um, you know, it's a pleasure to look after you. I learn from me every day. Uh, can't wait for the rugby to restart. So you can, um, take the mickey as we uh, lose with the Lions in South Africa. but uh, I doubt, I doubt. But, um, you know, man. thanks a lot, Toby.
1: OK, thank you, Andy, and thanks to Toby um, for sharing his experiences and insight with us. That was very powerful. Um, I'm going to move now on to Rob. Rob Monroe, um Senior uh, Programme Lead with Dorset CCG. And Rob, just going to talk to us a little bit about um, a number of areas of support and a little bit on coding of veterans. Rob, over to you.
5: Thanks, Lisa. Uh, hi, everyone. Um, well, to, to follow on from that. Um, I'll just uh, give a bit of background about who I am, why I'm um, taking up your time today. Uh, so I uh, served in the army for about uh, about eight years. Um, I left um, through um, a, a sort of a point in the career. Um, i done. I'd completed three tours. Um, family situation uh, presented um, and I met my now wife actually in the last regiment so I thought now's the time to leave Um, I've got what I wanted from the military even felt like I'd um, given something Um, so as typical uh, people who leave that point did something completely different so I worked in a school uh, as a business manager for uh, about two and a half years which was fantastic Um, really thriving large primary school Um, with the children there just to keep you sort of firmly rooted to the ground um, and a a fun experience Um, but then beyond there I joined the NHS um, in about July 2016 um, and joined the primary care team as it was which is now for us in Dorset morphed into the primary and community care team Um, I just uh, it's just a thank you really for the opportunity to share some what I'm going to plan to do is share some updates um, around some of the work going on I'll try and be generic, but um, I am part of Dorset CCG, um, Dorset Integrated Care System. So um, some of it might be focused slightly within the bu- the border, but if I can um, push it out, then great. Um, but it's all driven towards the supporting the armed forces community um, within the armed forces community. And I'll explain the difference. I am going to be focused on uh, supporting veterans um, predominantly within um, general practice, but I'll seek to expand from there. Can I have a next slide, please? Thanks, Joe. So um, terminology, um, the military is almost as bad as the NHS for using multiple terms, um, acronyms um, for a number of different things. Um, but the definition of the armed forces community I've lifted there is from the, the armed forces covenant. Um, and really that's, we, we can look at those as, as groups or to be bang up to date with population health management, even cohorts um, of people. Um, so those regular uh, personnel, those um, who are currently serving in whichever arm. So within the forces, you've got the um, the Army, the Royal Navy and the Marines and the Royal Air Force. All of those um, fit within the armed forces. Um, you've got the reservists there, which Andy already alluded to, veterans I've highlighted because I'll come back to those. Um, but crucially, that community does include um, the families. Um, of those and um, those bereaved, whether that's linked to the directly linked to the service um, or not. Um, before I move on to the latter point, um, Andy's already touched on it really well, actually. And part of the part of what we're finding when we do our engagement is actually to kind of dispel pre. Um, pre sort of preconceived notions about what a veteran is. It's not any, it's not just people who've served um, in the world wars um, approaching um, sort of the latter stages um, of, uh, of life perhaps. Um, there's approximately about two and a half million veterans um, in the UK, so that's about five percent of the population. Um, more than 50% are age 75 um, or older but you could invert that and say actually 50% are aged under 75, which starts to sort of prove the point. Um, and then the in terms of the anything um, demographic and things like that um, and uh, gender, 85% are male um, and the ethnicity is uh, mainly um, white according to the protected characteristics, but there is plenty of variation um, within there. Um, so it's a, to, to put it bluntly, it's a really useful a group to look at when we try and understand um, the health inequalities, um, try and use some of the, the emerging tools and techniques at our disposal to try and identify health inequalities, but more importantly how to how to meet them. Um, I said before you'll hear me rever- refer to general practice um, note in the audience, um, that's also because that's the the level of the scale that the Veteran Friendly Scheme um, is aimed at which I'm going to come on to. Um, However, recent conversation with the Royal College of General Practice and those leading that scheme, um, we, we've said, look, primary care networks are are established and they are emerging and they're doing great stuff and they're such a useful scale to work at and it truly does mean um, networks, so beyond general practice. So actually, how do we evolve that offer direct from the Royal College and, and start to talk about appropriate scale in terms of representation? Um, and then the final point I'd make around the... Um, the PCNs is when when we look at the maturity matrix um, in there it says working in partnership with people and um, communities you're going to hear about um, the tills um, later on from from colleagues so I won't I won't dwell on that but I will just expand and mention um, beyond some of the services that Andy's already mentioned about the military charities there are plenty of local community offers out there often started up by those with lived experience or um lived experience one place removed from dependents or family. Um, we've got veterans hubs, breakfast clubs um, and peer support and everything. And there's a huge amount, um, as I say, spread across. Um, and it's, it's really important to recognize that that in itself is a, is a network. And how do we within the statutory sectors start to, as, as we start to try and reduce health inequalities, work alongside um, both these uh, other providers and also users, Working alongside rather than doing two. How do we do that? We try to better understand from from their perspective, um, and that fits nicely with um, the personalised care approach, which I think was brilliantly summed up in that in that um, BT we've just seen um, about what matters to you, not what's the matter with you. Just a, just such a key nuance to um, to look at there. Uh, can I have the next slide, please? Thanks, Joe. So. Um, Andy 's already mentioned it again but here's here 's a link um, It all goes to the same um, sort of parent page but actually here's a here 's a guide um, about what the scheme is and you can you can recognize it from the brand in the in the top right um, there um, What I want to do is just is just draw out the uh, the main criteria you can see there um, you you 'll hear certainly myself and other colleagues involved in this work uh, about asking the question. Um, now, whether that's on, um, uh, I'll, I'll expand on it in a, in, in a detail next. But it's it's a theme to keep coming back to. Um, the next one is around the the coding, and again, I'll I'll expand on that because there's a few real um, wins in there. When it says nominate a, a clinical lead, um, we need to remember that the RCGP scheme. Um, is sponsored by uh, NHS England Um, so it does have general practice level there it does have clinical lead but already they've got about 850 practices signed up um, with a number of non-clinical leads so in terms of it's it's all about who is best placed who is appropriate who's got a passion who's got a knowledge um, who's got a willingness to learn to be that point of contact um, within that setting Um, and then when it says the um, the training this is a hot topic at the moment. Um, we do have uh, standard um, modules which are offered as part of the scheme, um, but actually what's been realized is actually we need to, we need to sort of turn it round and it's, it's also training for the providers of services. So not just who those in the health, health and social care settings will be linked to, um, but also the other way around. How can the, the evolution of primary care networks um, change or support the offer um, and how can the two meet in the middle in order to identify the needs of of the individual um, this is really to ensure that the the practices meet in the health commitments of as I said the armed forces um, forces covenant um, and they and those people who attend the training really are sort of a, a more local voice on the ground who so would provide the advice to colleagues. Um, whether or not they're seeing those veteran patients themselves. And then that requirement of a CQC good rating or higher. um, I'll say this again at the end, but CQC really like it. When you say as a practice, you've signed up to the scheme um, and also you've got a a process in place to code veteran status of of patients. And that's been echoed um, quite a few times. Um, The the, uh, benefits of joining the scheme, aside from what you'll see on the page, you really do join a, a network. So, whenever I reach out to um, uh, colleagues across Dorset or, or beyond, as in today, but also across the Southwest region, um, inevitably I'll start with those uh, points of contact who, from practices who have, who have signed up. And whether that's asking for their um, examples of good practice um, or just sharing latest information on things coming around the legislation of the covenant, for example. Um, the census this year, if it runs, um, will have a question. So, what does that mean? Um, and also some of those latest training opportunities as well. But from from the RCGP, uh, you do get a pack with um, top tips, that contacts page, um, and then a bit of advice and guidance of how to um, uh, use those referral pathways as well. Not just what they are, but how they could be could be best used. Um, it's really important to say, although I could sit here and say we've got, at last count, 21 out of 79 practices in Dorset signed up. Um, it's not a race to to get 100% first. Um, it would be great, in my personal opinion, if everyone did, um, being a veteran. Um, however, it is recognised that um, there is, you know, in, in every other area we work in terms of scale so even if we have one practice per primary care network for example and that clinical lead or lead will be the lead for that network if that's appropriate if that's if that meets the demand that's that's great and that's what i mean about working with the royal college to say how do we match pace with um with what's going on but there are there are a couple of factors um, again as I already as andy's already mentioned um practices linked to a, a garrison site Um, so even though people when they um, leave the service they might not settle straight away whilst they're serving you've probably got a lot of families um, or dependents around that area therefore users of service and they all fit within that wider armed forces community as I say Um, and then in terms of mapping the human terrain um, targeting those practices if you if you as a practice have a high proportion of veterans coded um, but you're not signed up then potentially you're missing out on a um, a network of support to um, to help you, therefore, uh, support those patients. Next slide, please. OK, so I said I'd um, come on to coding. Um, I'd, it's up there again, but ask the question. Um, the new patient registration, um, it, it should be there on every patient registration uh, form, whether that's a national form, a local form, um, usually sits around the, by the time you get to the, the point around, are you a carer or something like that? It, it's usually within that sort of category, but again, there's plenty of examples of, of good practice out there that people have used. Um, just right of that bullet is a, a bit of a translation um, of the codes. You can see there the top heading military veteran, that's the parent code. Um, I'm quite sure everyone else on the call is is far more FA with coding than I am. Um, But this really comes down to that individual choice. If somebody wants to identify specifically um, as an RAF veteran, for example, um, they can. The, The key point is though, that it all maps back to that parent code. So when we're just trying to establish from a human terrain point of view, who are the veterans and where are they, it all maps back. So we can still meet that personalization But the point is we can we can do things remotely using our tools and techniques under the population health management um, developments, etc. Opportunistically, so um, Andy's already mentioned again about um, skin cancer and prevalence and things like that. It might just be you're talking to someone that he use uh, things like the 24 hour clock. Um, Little nuances like they might say a brew, a marine might say a wet, something like that. hearing loss again already been mentioned by the British Legion um, and their offer and then um, MSK and it's just these little little triggers um, if colleagues are engaging with their with their patients and it just flags something it's it's worth um, just asking um, if the opportunity arises Um, and then proactively and it's not just because Andy's on the call um, but a colleague of his Claire um, came up with a really useful walkthrough um, of how to use the um, patient uh patient engagement system i think it's called um, but it's called mjog um, using an SMS, using an established list and just saying um, have you ever served please reply uh, i think it was Milvet, um, and it codes on the patient record automatically so it's things like that having a proactive approach but using a process when that comes back um, okay. to make sure we um say again yeah yeah excellent um to have that um, coded on the on the system. Now, I'm, I'm not sat here saying that coding is, is is the only way to do it. It's a very quantitative. Um, it does rely on, on the information being volunteered by the individual. And then what you might find is people are reluctant. So um, we've had people saying, it was years ago, I'm a different person now, I don't need that because I'm, I'm not serving anymore. Um, those who did national service quite often don't identify as veterans. Um, because it's they see it as a different um, category for some of the of the younger veterans um, as people like myself and and I know Toby mentioned it in the VT um, and it was and it was alluded to people have a um, you have a horrendous amount of guilt if you'd come back one if you come back okay um, you start to immediately think of um, of others that didn't and you kind of run away from that um, part of your life Um, but then quite often you'd circle back round and you think, well, what can I do to support? And for for that individual, if it's identifying as a veteran, if they say, have you got a veteran rep on your your PPG? Have you got a clinical lead? Is there anything we can do to understand it locally? It all just starts being triggered by that identification of um, themselves with veteran status. Um, And again, there are benefits to the individual to sell them. There is that peer support. So these networks that are being established this isn't exclusive to this group, but but only telling your story once um, quite often rings true um, of patients and then hand-in-hand hand, um, talking to someone that, that gets it. So veterans, certain groups of veterans will say, I, I will only talk to a veteran because they're the only ones that get it. Um, but even if it's someone that's got experience of the terminology of the offer, anything like that, it all just really helps that engagement. And the earlier that conversation can happen, the more um, engaged and credible, uh, the more engaged the individual will be and more credible that um, relationship will become. Um, and again, as Andy said, there is potentially priority treatment um, if the if the cause of the injury can be linked to military service. And again, there's form of words that have been uh, put together by learned colleagues that can be then dropped into some of those referral notes that again can be shared. Um, and the last slide, please, Joe. So um, I first of all um, recognize it's easy for me to sit here I, I work for a CCG um, so I'm not on the ground um, doing and um, again recognize just everybody's incredibly busy um, I guess the only the only point I'd make is uh, comments from colleagues to say actually the the process of signing up to the Royal College scheme isn't actually that onerous. Um, Quite often practices are already doing some of this anyway, so it's about just formalising some of that to get processes in place. Um, And if if, if it allows a bit of a a wider conversation and to draw on other resources to support the patient um, or group, um, then it may contribute to a reduction in in workload for individuals as well. Um, So if you're looking for things to do, if you're sat there saying, well, what can I do immediately? if the, the presentation will be shared, but click on the link, find out more about the scheme um, and encourage your practice to sign up um, code consistently. If you if anybody wants to know about um, what other people have done, then again, get in touch. And then th- this is a bit sort of commissionary, um, but it, it's aligning work to other initiatives and programs. So I've talked about population health management. I, I took the veterans as a, an example of a group to take get um, to use as examples. Um, because as Toby said in the VT, um, they're quite stubborn, but equally they're quite proactive. Um, so they'll, they'll give you some good feedback, um, positive or not. Um, we're doing work in Dorset with engaging with the voluntary sector. Again, this is where it overlaps with some of those local groups and also the charities. We're reviewing our mental health um, offer at the moment. And again, that must go hand in hand with the, the veterans mental health work as well. Um, identifying health inequalities, social prescribing, personalised care—it's all there. It's just about aligning work that's already happening to some of these um, developments around the offer of support for um, veterans and the wider armed forces community as well. Um, I will uh, stop there. I think that's all I all I had. Happy for anybody on the call to get in touch afterwards, or um, put someone else to get in touch with me. More than happy to support. Thanks, Lisa. Great.
1: Thanks, Rob. Thank you for a very interesting presentation. I'm I'm now going to hand over to Michaela. Michaela is the Acting Clinical Lead for Veterans Mental Health in South Central. Michaela is going to talk a little bit about some of the presenting, common presenting issues, uh, things like the Covenant and uh, the TILS service. Um, Just before I hand over, just a quick reminder. We've had a couple of questions in the Q&A, so do pop some questions in there if if you have any, and we'll try and cover them off um, during the, the webinar today. Okay, thanks, Michaela. Over to you.
0: Thanks, Lisa, and and thank you for giving us the opportunity to come and talk about the TILS service um, in in this arena. It's really important for us to get the message out. um, And I think especially for us, the message out to GPs that we are here to support our veterans in the community. Um, so, yeah, I'm currently the the, uh, acting clinical lead for South Central TILS. my background is a I'm a mental health nurse. Um, I have been for about 15 years and the last nine years I've worked in the veterans field. So um I've been within TILS for the last year and a half and before that, I worked um, with veterans in the criminal justice system, and also um, did a stint working at the, within the Armed Forces Commissioning Team for a while. Um, so this is a, a field that I'm very passionate about. So hence why we we try and stop ourselves from talking because we could talk all day about veterans and what we need to do to support them. So in terms of our service, what I'm going to. Do do first is um, hand over to um, my colleague uh, Jonathan who is actually known as GP in our service because of his name uh, which does cause some some uh, difficulties sometimes when we're talking about GPs and RGP. Um, but I'm going to hand over to him just to talk about the common presenting issues that veterans um, come along with and then I'll go on and talk about TILS after that so I'm just handing, handing over to you Jonathan.
4: Right. I've started my video and I've no idea if anyone can actually see me or not. Probably just as well if you can't really. Um, my, my name's John, John Pipe. I was a, um, uh, I'm a 22 year, um, veteran I served, um, came out in 2016. Uh, came out of the forces in 2016. Um, I came, I unfortunately left with physical um, disability and mental health issues. So um, I'm really looking forward to having this opportunity to try and put some of my experiences um, back into the system and also uh, to try and uh, speak on behalf of some of the veterans. Um, one of the most, the most important things I think you'll find when you're actually dealing with, um, with veterans as they're coming through your service um, is actually trying to get them to admit uh, in the first place that they've actually got um, got a problem. Um, I reckon most more of the time that you're actually going to see them presenting with poor sleep, pain issues, and drink and drug issues. Um, one of the one of the traditional painkillers always used in the in the armed forces has been drink. Um, so you're, that that's probably going to be a really good indicator as you're as you're coming through. Um, Additionally, and this has been hit on earlier by uh, by Toby and Rob, um, but uh, you know guys are very bad at admitting they've got mental health problems, um, especially the older generations, and it's getting even worse, made even worse by the attitudes of the armed forces. And that's not to say that um, any of the, um, the 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 women who come through the armed forces are any any. Um, better off i think in some some cases they probably have to be outman the men in order to be accepted and they find that and that that can be a real um uh, problem as well um there's also um and i uh, i apologize if this is going to offend anyone but there is within the armed forces, there's almost a hierarchy of uh, of injuries. Um, visible injuries um, can be seen as a badge of honour, whereas mental health um, issues can be really a mark of shame. And there's a phrase which I was actually hoping I could burn out of the vocabulary of "man up," which is nothing but um, n- nothing but destructive. Um, but that is often the you know it's got its time and a place when it's when it is of use, but the rest of the time it can be incredibly uh, damaging. One of the things that you'll often find as well with, the, with veterans that are coming through is that the armed forces' everyday events are always done for you. You know, The, the, uh, the quartermaster is where you're going to go and get your uniform. The cookhouse is where you're going to be fed. Uh, the gym is where you go. The regimental gym is where you're going to go and work out. And the medical officer is where you get sent when you're having physical or mental health um, issues. Um, veterans, when they leave, clearly have a choice to engage or not. Nobody's directing them in what they should be doing. Um, and this choice can actually be quite scary and a hard concept to get your head around. Um, and if you put into this, into context, this is, um, difficult for people leaving when they've got uh, when they're in good physical health and when they've uh, got good mental health Um, uh, but however if you try and navigate this with a mental health injury or mental health um, issue which you may not have even uh, revealed whilst you were serving it can get um, even even harder and oftentimes we end up being having our mental health issues suppressed or ignores because again coming back to this idea of manning up Um, when we do get to the the G- the surgeries, GP surgeries, it can often be because of the pressure from um, from families. We've a lot of people have actually hit rock bottom and they've got nowhere else to go, so it's the last chance. So, you as GPs really are, um, you know, the 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 last or often will be the last person that we we turn to. Um, and one of the interactions that I think you might find is that when guys and girls have been serving in the forces when they go and see the MO, it's often a, somebody of a higher rank and they're often referring to them as sir, there's a lot more deference or uh, suggested deference at the very least. Um, and all of a sudden, um, they, they're talking to somebody who doesn't speak the language. And that, I think that was something that Rob t- picked up on. So, um, you know, this idea of you don't understand us is quite a key one. Um, ideally. Veterans will be forwarded to or will leave contact details with the forces as they go out the gate um, in order for contacts to be uh, made with their local GP surgeries. But unfortunately, a lot of veterans don't know where they're going to be settling, um, and this can cause a problem as well. And they don't end up going to their GPs until they absolutely need them. Um, so, just in sort of a, a very, very quick um, sum up, you know. Rob mentioned this as well, and um, Andy had mentioned this earlier on, but actually just asking any, any of your patients who come through, have you ever served in the armed forces, is going to be a massive question to you. It's a non-judgmental one, and often veterans aren't aware of um, what services are actually out there or what they could potentially be accessing. Um, but I think that it's, it's key is to just to try and get them to talk. And the very last thing is very much that I think that majority of times, especially with veterans, the key question will be the question they'll ask as they're going out the door, as you are trying to get them out the door. So um, just please be, be aware of that. Anyway, thanks very much for listening.
0: Thanks, GP. Can we move on to the next slide, please? So, here is so when you're thinking about you know, who, who you refer to our service. Um, so, this will be um, serving personnel with a, a leaving date within three months of, of discharge of the military. Usually, we are heavily involved with the what, what we call the DCMHs, which is the Department of Community Mental Health in the military. Um, We are heavily involved with with those so that we can make a smooth transition from anybody leaving service that is under the the DCMH. We can ensure that they are picked up and then um, plugged into the most appropriate service in the community when they come out. Um, So our service includes um, reservists, so obviously reservists that are not currently deployed. um, They have a GP uh, living in, in the in our regions. Um, and part of our criteria for our service is that we know veterans find it very difficult to um, engage with GPs or register with GPs. So that is part of our criteria as a service that if if that veteran is struggling to to get sort of engaged with a GP, then that's that's where we come in also to support them to do that. Um, because we know they would have had a, a GP within service. It's not difficult, but obviously when you come out into the community, it's really difficult to to know what to do to navigate that. Um, so who can refer any professionals working with with the veteran um, self referrals, families, charities. We have a wide range of um, services that refer into us. Generally the most, I guess the most popular is self referrals, um, which is great to hear. And probably lastly is GPs um, referring into our service. So hence why I think it's really important today just to really get the message across um, that if you are presented with a veteran who does have mental health issues and they are very complex sometimes, then please do refer to our service. Next slide. So our care pathway is, um, so our, our gateway, which is our single point of access, and this is for South Central as well as South West Hills as well, and there'll be a slide at the end to, to give you those uh, details, but the single point of access is an 8-8 eight eight service um, and that will be um, a mental health professional. Um, taking that referral, those referral details, and risk triaging at the same time, because as we know, veterans can present in crisis. They are in risky. They're impulsive. They need. We need someone to to risk manage at that point. Um, and if they are deemed too risky for our service, then they are referred straight into a crisis service or whatever service it might be to meet their immediate need. Um, our service takes um, veterans that are low to medium, so not at immediate, uh, immediate risk of harm. We provide a daily uh, triage within our service, so when those referrals come in, we triage those daily to ensure that, um, that the, the referral is appropriate. We really advocate for a service number because then we, we know that, that that person is genuine. We do sometimes have people come through that can't give us a service number. And that makes it very difficult for us to um, obviously carry them on through the pathway. Um, to access some of the charities, obviously, we need a service number. Um, so we provide an assessment within 14 days. Um, so it's a very, very quick turnaround. And um, essentially, what our role is, is to provide that assessment and um, case manage and the onward referral. So basically, what what we'd be looking at is we're a team of um, social workers, mental health nurses, and peer support workers. So essentially, what we're doing is we're we're taking that client's holistic view, um, looking at all the, the mental health, the social, the physical, really exploring the military element. You know what what they've been, what they've experienced, what's the trauma. You know it was that you know the bullying which we know goes on all those kind of things really trying to get that information from them which sometimes can take two to three sessions because obviously We're in NHS service. We need to build that rapport, which doesn't come easily with with the veterans. So it can be um, a bit of a process. And what we're doing is we're essentially trying to engage them in the most appropriate service. So this might be in a timely timely manner. So it might be a CMHT. It might be um, the IAP service. It might be a military charity. Um, Whatever it is, that's what we're trying to do. It could be housing. Um, as I've already alluded to, they, they do present very complex, they don't just come with mental health problems, they'll come with debt, they'll come with housing issues, substance issues and it and it's really unpicking all of those things and trying to get them prioritise what's the most important thing here. Um, so that's essentially what, what we do um, in terms of the assessment and then, like I said, we, we're, we're we're providing that ongoing referral, so really making sure that that veteran is plugged into that service. We tend to hold on to them until we we know they've definitely engaged in the service because we know they fall through the net. If we discharge over to another service and we're not ensured that they've actually been assessed and picked up, we know that's when they fall through the gap. So we, we try and keep hold of them until we're assured that that's happened. Um, Another element of tools is that we provide a case management sort of uh, packages so we, we know our veterans suffer a lot with anxiety, depression, sleep issues and um, some with PTSD and what we do is we provide um, a package of, of almost like care of sort of three or four sessions where we might do some work with the, with the veteran on anxiety management or PTSD. And essentially, what we're trying to do is really stabilize the client and get them where they need to be in case they need to go to IAPT. We know we've done a piece of work with them to enable them to go to IAPT and get them prepared for what might come. But also, if they are presenting with PTSD, uh, certainly complex PTSD, which we do see, we then are the gatekeepers into our complex treatment service, um, which is a service that provides. a very lengthy pathway uh, in therapy, providing lots of different elements. Um, so that that's really a pathway for the complex veterans pre- presenting with military attributable trauma um, that, that are not suitable for IAPT. And generally their criteria would be um, it could be that the veterans already been to a CMHT and and been given some psychological therapy or been to a charity and received that that sort of therapy, but it's not worked, or they've not engaged for whatever reason. Um, you know, sometimes they say they want um, sort of a military understanding service that to support them, and we understand that. So that's sometimes why they might be appropriate for the complex treatment service. Um, so essentially, what we're trying to do is really engage them as quickly as possible. And sometimes we do, uh, if, especially if we do, we're making referrals for housing. We might. Uh, bring in the Armed Forces Covenant and remind our councils, housing associations or services that actually they are signed up to this. This this veteran has got military attributable issues and you know we are um, supporting them and that this is where the military, the, the Armed Forces Covenant comes in and really helps us to move those veterans on. Um, most of the time I think services don't understand what it is or whether they're signed up to it Um, but but most are so it's just about them getting that information and also referrals into CMHT sometimes are are a very long wait but we can then advocate and say you know this is military attributable you really that this this person needs to be seen soon Um, so we really advocate for that and so yeah we, we our onward referral was really important, um, and and that's kind of the clux of our of our work, I guess. But the the really important part too is um, we present a lot to services, um, really educating um, about veterans to services like CMHTs, IAP services, um, substance misuse services, really. Uh, providing some training to them, really giving them information around, you know, why maybe a veteran's not engaging, you know, and, and really giving them the tools to work with them. So um, I, I, what, I, what I'll do now um, is if, if, we, if we can just move on to the, the last slide, I think it's the last slide. So this is the, the referral process into our service and also Southwest as well is on here, which I I gather incorporates most of um, the regions here. I think we we cover Hampshire and Isle of White within uh, this audience, but we work very closely with our AWP partners and and the referral process is exactly the same. Um, But I wanted to hand over to Ross, one of our peer support workers, just to talk through a case study so you can really understand what, what we do within the service and how we can support somebody and especially with somebody like Ross who's got that military lived experience where it really helps to engage somebody so I'll just hand over to you Ross.
6: (laughs) Thank you very much, yeah hi as Michaela said my name's Ross Uh, I'm the other peer support worker in the team, Uh, also served for 24 plus years Um, I was medically discharged uh, and actually came out at the start of last year Um, so yeah we bring that massive amount of lived experience uh, to our team Um, Because we do, uh, our team does a holistic assessment, generally, Jonathan and I will work alongside one of the clinicians. Um, One gentleman that I was working with was a 67 year old gentleman. Uh, He left the military in 1976, Um, he'd only served for five years, but still described hating civvies. He was very stuck on the, I am a veteran and I hate civvies. Um, He'd been through substance misuse, uh, he'd had homelessness issues, he had got himself back into debt. So working alongside uh, one of our social workers, initially it was about building that rapport, building that trust up with me, which happened quite quickly, but I was able to obviously use that trust to help him build trust with the clinician as well. Uh, He started to open up uh, about things that had happened to him, previous to joining the military with the social worker, which would have been unimaginable uh, when he first had his assessment. Um, At the same time that this was happening, I was working with him on substance misuse issues, so I'd referred him into um, inclusion, working alongside inclusion for his uh, substance misuse issues. Um, I contacted SAFA because he had Debt issues, SAFA are a really, really good organisation. They case manage um, anyone who's been in the military that has um, any kind of sort of social issues. They provide financial support, housing support, support to buy white goods. So they at the minute are working alongside him to, to resolve his debt issues. Um, and he has been referred to Talking Spaces by our social worker. So hopefully, in the next few weeks, we'll start to tailor down the support that we give him once he gets picked up by by Talking Spaces. Um, another gentleman that I'm working with at the minute, he only left the military four years ago. Um, he's very low mood. He's ended up homeless. Um, he has issues around jobs as well. So he he was medically discharged, and he finds it really difficult to hold down a job or a job that he wants to do. Um, so currently what we're doing at the minute is we're working alongside Safa and the County Council to ensure that he's he's housed appropriately. Um, when he's housed, Safa are going to support him with his deposit for that house. They're also going to support him with furnishing that house as well. And what I am also doing is I'm tying him in with the Poppy Factory. Now, the Poppy Factory is an offshoot from the Royal British Legion. They work with people who have been medically discharged or wounded, injured, sick in service. So they have specialists there to support our veterans, um, finding uh, finding suitable work uh, to suit their needs, if you like. So over the next couple of weeks, I'll be identifying what he wants to do, not necessarily what he's qualified to do. And I think that's a, it's a big thing when we work with our veterans. We always have to look at it as what they want to do rather than what they're qualified to do. Can we hear that?
0: Thanks, Ross. So that's I, I right. hope that that's given you sort of a it's very brief overview, really, in terms of what we do provide. We we provide so much, but that that's just a sort of tip of the iceberg, really. And I, and I think the message for me is, please get in touch if you've got if you've got any doubts or queries, then please do contact us. And if you certainly if you've got veterans that are presenting with mental health problems and a whole you know, um, wealth of other issues which really need somebody to, to sit down with him and, uh, or her and and look at those issues, then absolutely make a referral to Teals. To it's um, it's a really good pathway for, for veterans and, and actually the feedback that we receive in our um, service user forums is great too. Um, so it, it really does support them but please do get in touch with us if you do have any veterans that you want to discuss. Okay, can I just
2: can I just clarify that yes. they don't need to be transitioning out of the military, do they? They can have transitioned out years ago as yes. basically.
0: Yeah.
2: So on your slide said within 3 months of transitioning out, but actually
0: Oh, that that that's for serving personnel now that are that are on their way out of the military. They need to need to have a discharge date of 3 months but anybody that, that, that's already transitioned, that's been out for years or whatever it might be, that's absolutely fine. Yeah.
1: Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm just conscious we've overrun a little bit, so I just really want to say thank you very much to all our speakers and also to Toby, who um, Andy pre-recorded his interview with. Um, it was a really interesting session. As we said, that will all be uploaded on this webinar. We'll also try and refresh our our web page with perhaps the help of Rob, Michaela and Andy to make sure all that information is accessible in one place. Um, And thank you very much for dialing in today. I know how incredibly busy everybody is, but I think um, that was a good session. So thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Thank you.